Well, I so appreciate being here today. I so appreciate being invited, and I love to hear you pray over all those aspects of everybody charging back <clears throat> into the fall. I got uh, excited there and a little choked up, and uh, I, I'm glad to receive those prayers from my children. And uh, I know there are many other parents that feel the same way I do as we're sending them into schools. And uh, no need to echo everything that's been said but to say amen. Well, today, it, you know, it's the end of August. We're going to wrap up The Quest. This series on the book of Ecclesiastes, it's been a lot of fun. And I think the reason that it has been so popular, I think the reason, because I thought, you know, I'll preach on Ecclesiastes and it's kind of this book in the Old Testament. People are like, hey, kind of skip a few, you know. Um, but this one has been so popular, I think, especially among younger generation, because Ecclesiastes seems to be asking the right questions. And if you've been here for this series on the book of Ecclesiastes, you know this. If you haven't, I can catch you up to speed real quick. We're used to coming to the Bible and seeing it as a book of answers. We're seeing it as proclamation, as preaching, right? So you read Galatians and it's like, this is how a person is justified, right? You read the Sermon on the Mount, this is the reality of how things work in the kingdom of God. You're coming for answers. Ecclesiastes is totally different. It's not a book of answers, it's a book of questions. Tim Keller says you, you can take the 66 books of the Bible, take Ecclesiastes where it's bound, and theologically, maybe not chronologically or biblically, but theologically, you could lift out Ecclesiastes, put it in the front of the Bible, rebind it, because Ecclesiastes opens with these big questions. Is there a God? If so, does he care about us? It, it, otherwise, is everything meaningless? Is there meaning to be found apart from God? I mean, all these questions. Then you start with the Bible, which attempts to answer these questions. But they're questions that so many people have asked. I mean, great, intelligent minds, uh, uh, folks who would say, well, I just haven't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing special, but I've thought about these things. We've all had these eternal questions in our heart. So I wanted to review at the end of this series, because so much of what I hear sounds like Solomon. It sounds like the author of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon and all his wisdom. I wanted to just review with you. I just wanted to kind of test how well you got the hang of Solomon by playing a little game show called Solomon or Not Solomon. So I'll throw up a quote here, and I always do this. I always forget to grab... Ah, I found it and dropped it. Solomon or Not Solomon? You have to tell me whether the quote comes from King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes or whether... It just sounds like Solomon from the book of Ecclesiastes. You ready? All right, here we go. Solomon or not Solomon. Here we go. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. I found this too is meaningless. So I said, laughter's silly. And what good does it do to seek pleasure? Solomon or not Solomon? If you guess Solomon, you are correct. Very good, very good. You get, everybody gets a point. Round two. People in your life are seasons, and everything that happens is for a reason. Solomon or not Solomon? That's right, it's Kanye West. That's right, you were very close, but it is in fact not Solomon. But it sounds the same. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. It's got to be Solomon, but it's in fact Jim Carrey. 
Jim Carrey. I mean, let's just back up a second. I think everybody should get rich. This is an interview with Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dream so they can see it's not the answer. That's Ecclesiastes 2 or Jim Carrey. It's the same point. It's the same point. Why do I have three? Well, this is an easy one. (laughs) It's not a jet. Why do I have three? What? What? I drafted... I, I drafted some jets yesterday. I, why, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? This is from the Bengals fan, Keith. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? This is an, well, three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think God... It's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? And obviously not Solomon. We're talking about Tom Brady. And you go, wait a minute. That's got to be Solomon. That sounds just like what the book of Ecclesiastes is pointing out. Listen, we say, look, guys, he's the dream, right? I mean, look, he's impossibly good looking. You know, in the prime of his life, he's... um, uh, uh, got the three Super Bowl rings, millions of dollars. He's got everything the world says. This absolutely will make you happy. Marry a supermodel, get the three rings, deflate the football. Do this, do all this, and that will be the thing. And what does he say? And if you re- if you if you watch this interview from sixty minutes, if you ever go back and watch this quote, it's not prompted. It's not like the interviewer is like, talk to me about, give me some ecclesiastical wisdom or whatever. He's just kind of riffing about life. And there's this really poignant moment. It breaks your heart. Where the guy who has everything, right, looks around and goes, man, it's got to be more. And I'm going, man, you could either get your three Super Bowl rings and get everything or just read. That's Ecclesiastes. That's why I'm playing this game show. I'm trying to get you to see, like, Solomon, the same thing is being uttered. How about this one? I also thought about the human condition. How God proves that people are like animals. For people and animals share the same fate. Both breathe, both, both must die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless is that? That's right, very good. That is in fact Solomon, right? But it's the same message you're getting. Now don't hang on. Nothing lasts forever but the earth and sky. It slips away and all your money won't another minute buy. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. That's right, it's not Solomon, it's in fact Kansas, and uh, look at that hair. If you look carefully, right there is what we're going for. It was true, I'd always realized it, I hadn't had any quote-unquote right to exist at all. I'd appeared by chance, I existed like a stone, a plant, a microbe. I could feel nothing to myself but an inconsequential buzzing. I was thinking, here we are, eating and drinking, to preserve our precious existence. And that there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. That's John Paul Sartre, and that is your, I mean, that's secular humanism. That's what my little first grader is going into a public school that fundamentally believes that. And then with a straight face is going to tell my first grader, but be nice to each other. To which I hope my kid goes, well... (laughs) You know what? I hope they do. I hope my kid goes, why? If we're dust in the wind, if this is the best you can offer me, if that is the best you can offer me, please tell me why. No, kids, be nice. Why? He's just an accidental, cosmological accident. A bunch of chemicals smashed together. Big bang he was, so big bang I can hit him. Why not? Why not? You can't build an ethic on that. Now, you can build an ethic on 
God created man and woman in his image. Well, now we got to treat people with respect. I can build an ethic on that. There's something to that. This, this is, this is the best secular humanism can do. And that, what I like about Sartre is at least he go, at least he's honest enough to go where his doctrine takes him. A lot of people want to have it both ways. They really believe this, but they, they don't have the guts to say it. They'll say, be nice to each other and we should, we should all, you know, I don't know, figure it out and live good. What's my point in this little game show? Well, the point is that the Solomon under the sun, and this goes back to the beginning of the series, but the, <clears throat> where Solomon says, if, if, all, if all life is, is everything that's under the sun. In other words, if, if we're all going to be secularists, if we're all going to be materialists, if all there is is what's under the sun, then life is absolutely meaningless. And then he does what a lot of professors who would say that can't do. He has the resources and the power to go out and prove that. And that's the rest of Ecclesiastes. So he has spent 11 chapters proving, I tried it. You name it. You name it. Oh, oh, you, you, you know, you think that living it up and having a wild party is great? Yeah, I got 10,000 people drunk for a decade. I did that. And I'm telling you, it didn't fulfill. I can prove it. Uh, uh, oh, you, you think that, no, it's not about the party lifestyle. It's about making a legacy, a difference, an impact. You got to build something. I built a national forest. What'd you build? Oh, you put some crepe myrtles in your front yard? Not impressed, right? Your house is Solomon's bathroom, right? Oh, no, but it's in love, man. Love is eternal. Love, okay, I had 10,000 wives or whatever it was, right? He had, he's famous for all these wives, all these concubines. He, all the romance. No, no, I did that. That's not it. Over and over again, Solomon begins to drive home this point, And he does it by design. And the design of the book of Ecclesiastes is simply this. If all there is is life under the sun, we should just despair. We should just all become, you know, Sartre or, or, or Jim Carrey or Tom Brady looking around going, I don't know. Or it should drive us to a point where we have to look beyond the sun. We have to look to the one who is eternal. And that all there is is not what's under the sun. We're not just dust in the wind. And so he spent 11 chapters doing this. And now, you know, he's mentioned in Ecclesiastes 3, for example, that God has set eternity in our hearts. So we have this aching. We have this longing. Nothing under the sun seems to fulfill it. He does that to get us to look beyond the sun. And now he gets us to the grand conclusion. Turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's the end of the sermon series. It's the end of the book. This is the grand conclusion. I, I don't even know how to read these words because I feel like there should be more pomp and circumstance. You know, we should all have graduation hats on or there should be some ceremony. We're about, the guy has taken us on a quest to find the meaning of life and he's about to sum it up. It's not often that people say without irony or joking, hey, here's the meaning of life. I mean, that's usually a punchline in a sitcom. This is like, he's going to point it out. So I feel like there should at least be a drum roll or something. You know, we spent 11 chapters, but here we go. He comes to the end and skip all the way to the very end. Go to, go to 12. Uh, go to 13. Well, okay, go to 12 just for fun because we're going back to school. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many book, books and much study wearies the body. I guess the kids are in kid mode, but if you ever need like a study break and your parents are <laughs> on your case about homework, you can just be like, well, you know, biblically, um, it says that much study wearies the body. <laughs> a joke bomb. Here we go, verse 13. It happens, yeah. That was, am I in the right chapter? Yeah, 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 Ecclesiastes 12, 12. Okay, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Here we go, you ready? This is it. This is how he sums it up. That's the whole story. I love that translation. That's it. 
The HTSB says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. Kind of anticlimactic, wasn't it? I mean, the guy experienced everything there was under the sun. And this, this is what, it doesn't even fit on a bumper sticker. Like, fear God and obey his commands. This is everyone's duty. That wouldn't even get you double-digit likes on your Facebook page. That's, that's just, wah, wah. I mean, that, that's the end. Here, here, this is it. Fear God and obey his commands. That's it? That's what he comes back to after all this? Listen, we got to unpack that because this is obviously of great value. This is obviously of great worth. So on the surface, if it looks kind of anticlimactic, it must mean we're not seeing it for what it is. So uh, let's start with uh, obey his commands. That part's pretty simple. In other words, uh, you could look at the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, people are pretty clear on what the commands of God are. Uh, you, 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 You think about the psalmist who praises the law of the Lord. He said it revives the soul. But I think we get... We get keep his commands. The one we may have a little trouble with is fear God. And so I want to unpack that for you. If you're a note taker, I've got a couple things here about what the fear of God is. And so if you're a person who takes notes, I want you to jot down these four aspects of the fear of God. The first is this. Simply, when when he says fear God, the reason that this is the whole point of everything is Solomon's bringing us to a point where he says, when it comes to fear of God, the first aspect of the fear of God is simply reverence. Reverence. Reverence is the awe before God's holiness. That's what reverence is. There, it doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're terrified or frightened when we use the word fear. It's not like a scary roller coaster or something like that. In this case, he's talking about awe. He's talking about reverence. Uh, I tried to think of a good illustration for reverence, and I, I couldn't come up with one. But there's a guy in my church. I have a church member. He's a little older. He grew up in communist Russia. Communist Russia. And went to college at, uh, in St. Petersburg. Eventually emigrated to the United States. And he found himself in Sacramento. And um, he actually became a... Uh, he, he's got a great testimony. He became a Christian because there in communist Russia, he went to... Um, uh, at St. Petersburg, he went to a gathering of atheists. Uh, kind of the atheist club. And they were reading and talking. And that's where he found faith in Christ. <laughs> because he was like, this, this doesn't add up. What you're saying is not logical. And uh, he met some sort of secret Christians there on campus. And they're like, what about this? He's like, now that's logical. So anyway, he's sort of, it's great. Oh, oh, there's God going, watch this. I'm going to use these people for my glory. Go ahead, have your club. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but anyway, God just showing off. The guy makes his way to California. And uh, Anyway, he travels. Now he's a member of my church. He's obviously gone to New York. He wanted work. He's an electrician. He's on his way to New York. And he loads up his family in the van. They drive. And when he gets to Kansas, they just all get out. And he starts weeping uncontrollably. Because he can't believe he lives in a country where he can just pick up his family and move them to the big city when he wanted to. He couldn't believe he was in Kansas. No one had sent him a letter of invitation to come to New York. Does that make sense? He didn't have to ask permission. He didn't have to bribe a bunch of corrupt officials to get a license to come and move to the big city to get a job to improve prospects for his family he could just you ready for this move and i was shocked by that story i'm like mm-hmm. of course you can move duh right and he's like you, i don't think you're getting this you can't just move you have to have some letter of invitation and all and he's like you realize that freedom I was like, no, I don't realize that freedom because hashtag America. Like I don't, I, I'm just, I grew up here. I don't, and he's pointing this stuff out. So we were in a Bible study and he said something and it blew me away. 
And somebody was talking about the grace of God and the love of God. And he, he was not being judgmental at all. This guy has a huge heart. He wasn't being judgmental. It sounds harsh what he's saying, but it's not. And what he said was that he said, you know, growing up in communist Russia, when it comes to Christianity, I find that you all who grew up here, he's like, seems like we have opposite problems. You guys seem to get the grace and the love of God so easily. And you just miss his holiness. And I get his holiness so clearly because I know what absolute power looks like. But I can't, I can't get his love and his grace the way you can. He, you understand what I'm saying? He was not judging anybody. He was just pointing out that I can't seem to see the love of the holy God and you can't seem to see the holiness of your loving God. I thought that was pretty insightful and in, in pretty incisive commentary to the state of at least my spiritual life, I think he's right. And I miss something of the awe and the supremacy and the absolute, to be absolutely powerless before someone who is in power above you. I don't know, man, I'm in America. I can always vote that guy out of office or something, right? But to have, to really understand that in a way, to know that God is in control is reverence. And that's what he's saying. That leads us to that. You're not in control. I fear God and obey his commandments. The second aspect of this. So the first was reverence. If you're writing this down, the second one, and I got this one from Andrew, my intern, who a couple points in this message are from Andrew. Uh, he preached here, but he's the one who, uh, I, I never really thought about it before, but he, uh, a part of the fear of God, experience of God. Let me explain what I mean. Solomon's trying to say, here's the end of everything, reverent fear, but also you need to experience the fullness of God and who he is. And, and this is where my intern got this. He was talking to his friend who's from the Midwest. And she has this insane fear of tornadoes because she's been through them and she's seen entire cities leveled. They were at a Mets game and the, eh, some siren or something went off and she just like jumped up and instinctively went down. And he's like laughing, like, what are you doing? He's never been through a tornado. You could tell Andy like, oh, you know, there's going to be a tornado. And he'd be like, oh, cool. Let's watch it. Let's go hang out, you know, <laughs> right? And his point was simple. The reason I didn't have the same fear of tornadoes, I hadn't experienced their fullness. I hadn't experienced their fullness. And so when it comes to the fear of God, the other thing Solomon's trying to say is not just reverence, but have you experienced the fullness of who he is? And those moments, they add up. Experiencing not who you have imagined God to be, but Solomon wants you to experience his fullness. The third thing I would point out, um, you know, every human has this uh, really cool uh, part of us, I guess buried deep somewhere up here, uh, the fight or flight mechanism. And this is when an emergency happens, your body helps you out. It squirts extra adrenaline. It's like, a bear! Your body's like, we're going to help you. Gives you extra adrenaline and focuses all your attention squarely on the bear. Nobody ever goes, the bear! And, you know, is my cell phone bill late? I can't remember. You don't care, okay? You're focused, this is a bear, right? And you're suddenly, do I fight the bear? (laughs) Do I run for my life? Whatever it is, right? You hear these stories of a mom comes out, the toddler's trapped under a car, and what does she do? Lifts a car. Something she would never be able to do, but her body has channeled all her energy to do what? To reorient her entire world around this single thing. That's fear of God. A kind of perpetual fight or flight mode where your life is reoriented around God and not the other way around. You don't put God in orbit. The most important thing in my life is school. God, you're part of this. You're out here. No, the most important thing in your life is God. School orbits around that. 
Work orbits around that. Everything else orbits around that. That's what Solomon is saying. That's what he means by fear of God. That's just the third facet, I think. Reverence uh, uh, experiences fullness. Fight or flight. Reorientation of your life around God, not reorienting God's existence around your world. All of life becomes reoriented around this single thing. And the fourth and final aspect, and I'm sure I shouldn't say final, there's no doubt many, but the fourth one for our purposes today. Fear at its root can mean a loss of control. And that's not necessarily a negative thing, but we are simply not in control. Can I tell you something? If your life has ever been out of control, it was an illusion to start with. No human has ever lost control. A human has lost the illusion that they ever had control in the first place. That's what shatters, the illusion that they had control. They've never really lost control. And fear, when it says fear of God, it, one thing it means is a loss of control. Once we behold God in the scriptures, once we go to him in prayer, as we walk with him, as we go to experience him in his fullness, one thing we behold is clear when it comes to God. We are not in control. We are not God. His ways are not our ways. And that's why he sums up this whole book of Ecclesiastes with, the, with that simple point. Fear God and obey his commandments. Reverence for God. Experiencing the fullness of God. Reorienting our life around God. And knowing that God, not us, not, not we are in control, but God is. And that is, when you start to unpack it like that, you see that... That simple way, that is a good way to end the book of Ecclesiastes. That is a good way to point out the conclusion of the matter. He's, he's reinserting God into this mix, and it changes everything. All right, but what if you say, I don't know. I'm not convinced. I don't know if I like the idea of fearing God and keeping his commandments. I mean, I've, I've been through 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes, but, you know, I don't know. Well, in that case, I, I don't think it would be the best use of our short time that remains to try to convince you that you are supposed to fear God and keep his commandments and just sort of twist your arm and, you know. If you're here today and you would say, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if Ecclesiastes is, is compelling or not. I don't know if I like the idea of fearing God and keeping his commandments. Then the simplest thing for me to do would be to invite you to examine. If you don't fear God and keep his commandments, simply invite you to examine whom will you fear and whose commands will you keep. Make no mistake, you will fear something or someone. Fill in this blank. If not God, who? There is no exception to this rule. You will slavishly obey the commands of something or someone. You will re... No one's neutral. No one is a free agent when it comes to worship. You will reorient your life around someone or something and that blank will be filled in. Why? You are hardwired to crave. You were built. It's in your DNA. You were built to stand in awe before something that you deem transcendent. You can't help it. You have to, ha we, we all have to fill in that blank. And if, if anybody would have the gall to say, or at least the honesty to say, well, not me, I don't, I don't. I don't bow the knee to anybody or anyone. I do what I want. Well, then you filled in the blank with yourself. That means you are the God of the universe. And no wonder you're so scared and no wonder you're so hateful. You're scared because if you're the God of your own universe, you should be scared. You can't even keep your car running, man. That's just a transmission. How are you going to keep the universe running? 
If you're your own God, you should be scared to death. And you should be filled with hatred and anger. You know why? Because there's everybody else's little God, and they're trying to take your universe from you. You have, you have no choice but to orient your life around fear and anger and competition if you are your own God. Because there's all these other little gods, and they got their little kingdoms too. And gods are always in competition. See? So fear God and keep his commands. If you say, well, I don't fear anybody. Well, then fear yourself. You'll keep your own commands. But everybody, let me give you some popular options for ways to fill in this blank. Because I just want to be helpful. I just want, and this will be helpful for you as you talk to people. I don't think it's necessarily a good idea when your friends, man, I really want to talk about faith, but I just don't believe. I don't think the best option is you don't, really. I got this heavy Bible. Right? Whack him over the head with Ecclesiastes. Right? Sometimes you need to. But not always. Uh, if you do, use a leather bound at least. Be gentle. The point is, you don't do that. All you want to do is help them, ex- help them see. Help them see where they are. What if they're putting this in the blank? Fear. How about this one? Relationships. Don't fear God? Okay. Then make relationships transcendent. Make relationships the most important thing in your life. What does that look like? Unless I can get my parents' approval on this. I'm a grown person, but I still don't feel my parents' approval. Unless I can get that, I just can't go on. I can't do it. I will do what it takes. I will obey this God's command. Unless I can get this girl to go out with me on a date. Unless, How about this one, parents? Unless I raise a decent kid. Everybody wants their kid to do well. This is different. I need my kid to do well. I have laid on my child deity status and now how well they hit that t-ball is not just a reflection of how well they play this game it's a reflection of me and my identity is all wrapped up in them and that's why i'm so mad i need them to do well and i also need you to love me right but they can't love you you've put on them no kid can bear the weight of godhood see but you need them to that's an example of fearing the power of relationships and keeping in its commands. Can I just talk especially to those of you who are single? We had this group of 20-somethings up here. And I know a lot of you are not married. And those of you, you know, whatever your age. You know, when you're dating. Um, I haven't seen it. But there's this episode of South Park that my intern told me about. And in this episode, the, it's, it's a very... Um, uh, uh, trashy uh, adult animated series if you're not familiar but they they have some pretty insightful social commentary sometimes in this in this uh I, again i haven't seen it but in this uh, in this particular episode the, the guys in south park uh listen to this music and um they realize that they can become stars of christian music and here's how what they do is they take love songs and they just like switch a few words and sing them to jesus and don't tell me you haven't been there listening to John Legend. Every now and then you just put your hand in the air, you know, right? And I thought about that. And it's really, like, really kind of taking a jab at, at, at Christian music. And, and so that's what they're doing. They're just taking the latest Celine Dion or whatever and just comma Jesus, right? So they're just taking the love song, whatever. And they make all this money or whatever. And they're mocking the sort of corniness of Christian uh, music. And maybe. This is, this is what I thought. Maybe that is a critique of modern Christian music and how it can be cheesy sometimes. Maybe. Or maybe, maybe the real joke is on South Park. Here's what I mean. Maybe the real sickening irony of it all is that they got it backwards. Modern love songs are, in fact, worship songs. All of me loves 
All of you, that kind of devotion is to be reserved for God. The reason a modern love song could easily be turned into a hymn to God is not because Christian music's corny, but it's because lonely and scared humans are trying desperately to fill the chasm in their heart, and the closest thing they can find is is human love, and so they turn the whole thing into a three-minute ditty and take the worship that belongs only to God and lavish it on a human being. Right? And then have the nerve to mock God because our worship of an idol sounds like worship to God. I'm going to write a show called North Park. Tell me, single people, tell me on the radio that you aren't being fed every day a false gospel that relationships can save you. It's a whole gospel music. Every channel on the radio is a gospel channel. It's just that some of them are false gospels and they're offering something they can't do how many love songs have the word forever in it not even i'm not even going to be married to jackie forever i said that in my vows till death do us part i don't have an eternal marriage in that sense to her not even my wife she knows that i mean you can tell her it's not like (laughs) what a reveal glad i came to church why because my eternal relationship is with christ right and, and the love song is offering you that. That's a false gospel. And that's being filled in. The problem's not with Christian music sounding like love songs. The problem is love songs sounding like worship. How about job? Vocation. Fear your job and keep its commands. You answer an email daily during your family dinner. It's a worship issue. You're fearing your job. I mean, they might be talking without me. I know it's 10 p.m., but somebody's probably emailing about me right now. And if I don't get CC'd on this, I'll just, I'll be left out and whatever. You're, you're keeping its commands. You know, one of the things that in a modern civilization, we look back on child sacrifice. How brutal, right? To think that we would offer a child, if my God demands my kid to be placed on the altar, I will do it because you know, we think that's so brutal and so backward. And yet, how many children have been placed on the altar of job because we fear career and keep its commandments? Child sacrifice is still happening. That's all in Ecclesiastes 12. That's right there. He's saying, you will bow to this. What about wisdom, knowledge? How about that statistic Pastor Linda shared that knowledge doubles at an exponential rate? And how easy would it be to keep up with what's new and what's forever being revealed as the latest and jen is right what she said you, the world is happy to disciple your children see but as christians we tell our kids i know there's new information every day but kid stick to the old roads stick to the ancient paths they're narrow not everybody finds them but they still lead home Fear beauty and youth and keep its commands. And it demands politeness. <laughs> or whatever, right? It demands Botox. It demands, right? Why? Because our culture worships youth. They worship beauty. And what a satanic plan that is. Let's take humans who every minute are wrinkling and thickening and make the idol the one thing that they're forever getting further from. You tell me that's not from Satan, right? If you worship beauty, 
I warn you, this God will pour out his wrath slowly over a lifetime. If, however, you can grieve the loss of youth, grieve the loss of beauty, and say, you know, God does not see as man sees. For People Magazine looks at the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, my version. If you can grieve the loss of youth and beauty and say, you know, maybe there's something beautiful out there that's not found where the magazines tell me it's found. See, there's only two options in every one of these idols. The list could go on and on. We'll wrap up. There's only two options. Either you will, either you will like Tom Brady, get the idol you wanted and be disappointed. By the way, both of these end badly. When it comes to idols, you'll either get the idol you wanted and be disappointed because it didn't fulfill you. Or you won't get the idol and you will stand unprotected under the wrath of that idol as he, it, whatever, pulls it, pull, pours out that wrath. So is the solution to ignore these things? Ignore your job, ignore relationships, ignore beauty, youth? No. No, no, no. Why did I bring them up? Remember the whole point. Fear God, keep his commandments. Then what is the point? You either fear God and are released from the fears of everything else or don't fear God and fear everything else. The answer is not to stop caring about these things because we all know if you just sort of uproot the idols, they'll grow back. The secret is to replace them. These idols cannot be uprooted. They can only be replaced. Solomon said, I tried them all. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands as opposed to everything else where will that take you today at the end of this series you know sermons aren't really good unless you do them you know you don't need to go back to where you were spiritually years ago as you think back you know that you can't the question is how are you going to take the next step today to fear god and what of his which of his commands will you keep and which of his commands will you encourage others to help help them to keep no need to wait for someone else to move. Well, but if my husband would fear God and keep these commands. Well, you know, if my ex would fear God and keep these commands. Well, if my boss would learn to fear God. And keep, we, listen, we've got to clean our side of the street. Fear God and keep his commands. Why? This is somber and scary, but it's also encouraging. The last verse. Uh, that was not the last verse. That's the last verse. Four. God will bring every act into judgment. Or in this case, God will judge us for everything we do including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the last verse. And that can be somber and scary. Like he's saying, this is important, this matters, because there will be accountability. But I think it is encouraging, and here's why. What's the whole book been about? The whole book has been about, apart from God, life is meaningless. What's this verse mean? This verse shows us, with God, everything is shot through with eternal glory. It means every life in here matters. Every life is going to stand before God. Every life can have an eternal impact and infinite meaning. Why? Because God is now in the mix. God will judge us. For everybody who said, look, no one cares. It's all meaningless. It's all vanity. No one cares. Uh-uh-uh-uh. God cares. For everyone who said, you know, no one notices. Like, I'm doing all these secret things. Like, I keep helping these little old ladies across the street, and then they, they never tell anybody. Like, I'm getting no credit. Like, whatever. Oh, no, no, no. No, God sees. God sees. It's all vanity. It's worthless. It doesn't matter. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. It matters very much. Everything matters. If this is true and everything matters and God sees everything, then everything we do, 
no matter how big, no matter how small, whether it's open or secret, good or bad, it all matters. It is shot through with eternal glory. And what a way to end a book where the question is, does any of it matter? That is the stamp at the end of Ecclesiastes. Yes, it matters. As the band comes forward and we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, the scary part of this verse, of course, is that whole uh, first three words, God will judge, you know. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago, and he's like, man, I'm tired of seeing this only God can judge me t-shirt. I saw a tattoo, only God can judge me. He says he wants to go up to people who say, only God can judge me. He wants to go right up to him and go, that should scare you to death. (laughs) You know what I mean? The tattoo to get is only Tom can judge me, because then it's like, who cares? But to say only, like, how does the word only in any way fit in as a modifier when used before God? Now, how scary is this statement? Only God can and will judge me. I don't want to stand unprotected under the wrath of a holy God. You don't either. And so we look around and we look at Solomon and all his wisdom. He didn't get it right. He told you. And when he's raising these questions, who then can stand? And the answer is provided, of course, in the rest of the scriptures. And we know in the great story of redemption, the answer is this. Listen carefully. There is one who can stand before God. And he has made a way. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. And he has made a way for all who will be united to him in this eternal relationship to stand before God faultless in his righteousness. How does that work? It's an old Latin word, justification. He has justified guilty sinners and declared them righteous before a holy God. How could he do that? Where was the penalty for sin paid? It was paid on Calvary's cross. He stretched out his arms on that cross. The blood poured down. But then he was dead. He was laid in a grave like the story ends. But on the third day, he what? He rose from the dead and lives in such a way that all who are united in Christ Now, when we see God will judge us, ponder this. God will judge my life according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he will count Jesus Christ's punishment as credited to me. That is a shocking and almost too good to be true act of grace on the part of a holy God. In this way, he can be both holy and gracious, full of mercy, full of love, and full of awe-inspiring holiness. And so it's, it's with this that we, we think, we, we ponder, we, we say, well, you know what, I, all that stuff about fear God and keep His commandments, I fail at keeping His commandments, I can't get it, but the one who is alive lives inside of me and He can keep these commandments. Maybe the secret to life is not going out and dreaming up great things of God, but yielding every day and allowing the life of Christ to be lived through me and His power. I live daily in His power in depending on Him. He said, but to do that, I would have to depend on Christ every day for everything. Yeah. Yeah. Fear God and keep His commands. It's a whole duty of man. Let's turn our attention now to this great sacrifice that was poured out. Let's turn our attention to this table which provides the answer to all the questions that Ecclesiastes was raising, right? And it's a table where we remember the great sacrifice of King Jesus that made that merciful act of justification a reality. The Bible says that on the night He was betrayed, Jesus took some bread and after He'd given thanks, He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said, whenever you do this, right, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. And so I'm going to say a prayer and the ushers are going to be moving around. Just let them do their thing. And we're going to come to the table and rejoice that our justification has been settled. And Ecclesiastes 12, 14 is no longer a verse of great fear, but a verse of great hope for all who are in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, O God, that in the story of redemption, you have answered the questions that Ecclesiastes has raised. We thank you, O Lord, for the Word of God, for the Scriptures that guide. We thank you for the ancient wisdom. We pray now as we come, we would come with humble hearts, ready to receive, dependent completely on you. And we thank you for the great act of grace, wherein Christ died and rose again for us and our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.